Welcome, welcome to another episode of Awaba Pod. I'm Rod Smith from Awabakal, and today's episode is around Black Lives Matter. Today I am in the presence of royalty. To my left, the one and only Debbie Swan. Then over to the other side, Jake Ridgway and the one and only Mr. Sean Gordon. Guys, firstly, thank you for coming along and chatting uh, about this topic, which is just ruling uh going right across the the world right now um and just to start off how about i'll start off with you deborah how would you like to just can you just uh introduce yourself and give us a few words yes thank you rodney um like rod said my name is debbie swan i'm a gomeroy and wiradjuri descendant um i lived most of my life on gomeroy land and now i'm just living in a Wabika land here at newcastle you feel good about that too eh? Yeah, I feel good about being Gomeroy. <laughs> Mr. Jacob Ridgway, tell us a bit about yourself. A man of many different talents. Yeah, I'm a proud Warramai Gomeroy man. Um, born and raised Newcastle, Port Stephens. Um, worked in the community sector, community engagement, um, youth work for a while. And then I left, decided to pursue a passion. So I lived up in Queensland for six years and uh, decided to become singer-songwriter. I moved back in the last three years and... Uh, pursuing that as a passion and working in media hell of a lot more now and currently doing my master's in creative industries how's that going it's difficult under all these times you know not really doing things face to face but you know i've been away and traveling and having to adapt to that so it's um i think i'm adapting a hell of a lot more than some others would be at, at the present time cool and mr sean gordon yours repertoire could go on for 10 hours but can you wrap it up into about 30 seconds for us what have you done in your lifetime who are you well these days i'm a uh, a business owner i've got my own business called gigi group um, and i've been operating there for two years uh prior to that i've been in the um the the aboriginal land rights space uh the political space um and so i've been i've, I've been around the traps for a little bit uh, but I'm still in the political space, and I do I do quite a, a, a bit at the moment, mainly around um, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Um, I'm doing a lot of work in that space right now, and that's um, I guess that's my passion project outside of business is to um, is to continue to pursue that work. Just quick question on that, like I, I suppose with someone like myself who's just been mostly sport orientated in the in the arts and with music. I've never really been one about with politics or put my foot in that way. How, how, does, how do you get into that field? How did, what happened to you? Was there something in life that just happened where you thought, you know what, I need to go down this avenue? Oh, look, I think you evolve over time. When I, when I look at the Black Lives um, Matter rallies that happened around the country, I've, I only got to go back to 2000 and, um, 2005, 2006, when ATSIC was being abolished. I organised a big rally here in Newcastle another one in um, Canberra um, so I've been through that path I, I, I think you're um, as you as you get older you sort of evolve and um, and I've, I've led into the political political path um, yeah so I think it's just been an evolution more than anything it's not one thing or another it's just um, it's just been that I've, I've managed to get to that space where mm. I um, I do a lot of work with um, with politicians and trying to educate them on our issues I've heard you speak many times, and I think you are the right man for the job. Now, as I said, the, uh, today's topic is around the, the Black Lives uh, Matter uh, movement that is sweeping the world at the moment. Um, so with, you know, another trigger that has been, this is, you know, nothing new for us, but, you know, with George, the passing of uh, George Floyd, um, I just want to ask you real quickly, just on that, uh, you know, what is your feeling and response to the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, with all the marches and the protests that are happening around the country and around the world so far? Debbie? Um, well, I think we've been protesting for a long time all over the world, besides America. We've been doing a quite a, a lot here, um, and it dates, you know, right back to early times in 1973 when the 10 Embassy movement and... Yeah, 65 when Charles Perkins got the bus and did the Freedom Ride um, around New South Wales in particular. Um, so we've been going for a while, but I think probably now what excites me is is the amount of rallies there are and that they are all over the world. Um, and I think that just helps the cause. Um, 
when we see all these people, and it's not just um, people, Indigenous peoples, it's um, non-Indigenous peoples mm. as well. And I think, um, yeah, like it's been building up for a long time and it's just so great to see that there are a lot more other people who we would not have, have expected to join these rallies. Mm. Mm. You mentioned the Charlie Perkins bus ride. That stopped in Moree for the pools and all that, didn't it? Was you around there at that time? I was. I was eight years old when um, Charlie Perkins came to Moree. Do you have any memories of that? I do. I just remembered that um, we weren't allowed to get too close because, of course, I was only eight years old. Um, but, um, yeah, and I remember afterwards that um, we did start going to the pool. Never went to the pool before then. Um, and... So it was probably another four years when I was in high school because we actually had a pool down at the mission that we used to swim in. Um, that um, that's we weren't allowed at the main pool, so we had a um, pool down the mission. And when we went to um, school at the mission school down at um, the mission, um, the pool was around near the school, so oh, so we could go. learn how to swim. In the pool. <laughs> Not the river. Not the river. <coughs> the Mihai? Is it Mihai? It's the Mihai. The Mihai River. River at Mori. Mr. Ridgway, how are you feeling about everything that's happening around uh, the world in this country at the moment? Yeah, it's protest isn't something new. And just to echo what Arn said too, like these protests and organisations have even been around prior to Charlie Perkins. Uh, you can go back to the docks in Sydney in 1903. There were, not only that, there were people... Um, who were black and international coming in that were working on those docks, people coming in on the ships who were following the movement of Marcus Garvey at the time, who inspired that movement in um, 1924 of Fred Maynard, Sid Ridgway with the AAPA, um, arguably the first um, organised political activist group for our people in the country. And then on top of that, then you've got your William Coopers, your Bill Ferguson's, your Pearl Gibbs coming after that with the day of mourning. So it's, we've been doing this for a long time. And I can imagine some of our older fellows, they're tired. Mm. So it's, you know, as a younger person, like picking up the reins and seeing a lot of people uh, from a younger demographic walk these marches, um, black and white, it's inspiring. But at the same time, being black, we... You know, we don't. We can't turn this off. Mm. It's not a nine to five job for us. We have to live <laughs> it. So, I'm optimistic, but we've seen it happen before through history. Mm. So, do you have the resilience? Do you have the passion um, to actually walk with us as long as we have to walk? Because mm. we can't turn it off. True, mm. true. Sure, sure. mm. Shawnee, as you're saying, like. Um, going down the political avenue and just seeing everything that's happening now is there when you see things that are happening now does that reignite more of a fire in you or is that fire just always the same yeah no look the, the fire is always the same i think it's um it, you you see you, you maybe get a little bit of a bit of excitement the heart rate might go up a bit but you know the, the fire stays the same i guess you know my experiences within this space i go back to my hometown um and, and think about Lloyd Boney in um, August 1987. Um, you know, within 95, 95 minutes of, of, of a period of 95 minutes, um, he's, he's died in custody. Um, ten years later, I, I think about um, Fiona Gibbs, um, again in Brewarrina, uh, dying from custody. Uh, I was living in Brewarrina at the time in 1987, and I, I lived you know, less than 80 metres away from the police station. And um, uh, the horrors of that night were quite... Um, yeah, mm. it's very, it's very scary um, mm. because there were people j jumping out back fences. There were people with guns. Uh, you know, farming community sided, the, the non-Aboriginal community sided with the police, and it was it was a scary time. Um, you know, but uh, you know, as Jake said, we go back into our history. Yeah. Um, and you all, you go all the way back to 1901 when they look at signing the founding documents. Mm. You know, two uh, two Aboriginal men walked all the way from Cumbragunja mission yeah, into yeah. into uh, Melbourne to be at that signing of that document especially yeah. coming um, in that time too yeah, you're a product of the white Australian policy yep. so they yeah. were they were those two people were there protesting um, saying why are being why are we being left out of this um, historic document that is meant to recognize um, who we are as Australia 
Just real quickly, uh, I'll just, do you want to explain the difference between what's happening in America with their movement to uh, what to the marches and the protests we're having here where Australians are seeing deaths in custody? Why is, why is ours different to theirs? Oh, look, I think the, the most important thing is that we are the first people of this country. Um, Americans, um, black Americans, African Americans um, were obviously, you know, brought into the country through slavery and, and so on. Um, so we, you know, we're constantly fighting from a, a very different position. Mm. Um, we're not a part of populist culture and, uh, you know, I, I think why we all look to America when these types of things happen is because of popular culture and you look at the the MBA, which, which is made up of majority um, black, black Africans, you look at the... Um, uh, NFL. The, the NFL, you look at all of those spaces, you yeah. know, look at the, the best golfer in the world at the moment, the best tennis player in the world, you know, so so there's popular culture to, to look to um, America as the lead, um, but when I look to our counterparts in America, which is the Native Americans, mm. um, they're on a very similar um, path yeah. to us when I, when I look at inequality, when I look at inequity, um, when I look at all the disparity gaps around health and so on, um, that's who we should be looking to. Um, but you know this is a, f- a fantastic movement at the moment and hopefully something comes of it um, mm. as, as Debbie said it's great to see all of these movements happening right around the world which clearly says to people we've had enough but more importantly to see non-Aboriginal people or non- non-black you know see white people yeah. Yeah. Um, protesting just as strongly as black people against this um, that's the positive sign in, coming out of all of this very good very good Next question, look, uh, in, in seeing a lot of the, the, the videos and the films on TV and the photos that are getting on social media, there is a lot of young people I'm noticing are uh, a part of this whole movement. So, Jake, I'll start off with you. Uh, this is for all of you, but just start off with Jake. Are young people more empowered now than in the past? And do you think our young people can do more now than in the past? I suppose that's based on, yeah. like, you know, with education, schooling, all that compared you know when i think about my mother i don't know how many times she'd say i only went to six class because back in those times you know that's all she could do like even my dad left in year nine too so it's like when i look at that that was what, late 80s so for me when i look at it and being empowered i think there's layers to it are you empowered within yourself are you empowered within your culture you know and, and those elements around that um, and we do have a lot of people that are, but we also have a lot of people who are disconnected because of identity of the, the systems put in place to oppress us. Mm. So how do we lift each other with that in mind? You know, so it's um, it's a little bit, there are layers to that, but in terms of the generation that I'm a part of, can we do more? Yes. You know, um, I look at, people in the room right now like i was exposed to far better education than probably yous were you know you might have been kicked out of school for having that snotty nose <laughs> it's true you <laughs> no, might have been no. kicked out of school for that, school, That's that snotty like, nose it is. it's true that snotty nose might have forced you to be taken away from your family mm. you know you guys were told if you were in school and you spoke lingo spoke language it was forbidden mm which then comes down to us where we're at. We've got this like watered down, bastardized version of language that's now devalued mm. within our society. And you take away language, you take away a lot of identity in that as well. But what I see when we look at that educational system, I'm a product of going through and learning all these tests, mm. studying for tests for the sake of answering tests for a, the white answer. Mm. When was Australia colonized? Mm. When was Australia discovered? Yeah. Not invaded. Mm. Like you go back to the whole decision of Terra Nullius. Mm. Prove the fact. But our educational systems between primary school and high school haven't changed. It's still driving this narrative. Mm. So by going into university, you go into this space now and you've got to unlearn everything for the sake of knowing that it's a lie. You go into a university space because you need evidence to back up everything you're saying. And when you realise, oh, everything I've been told is a lie, mm. how, do you, how do you feel about that? Do you just carry on and live the lie because you're happy with being comfortable? Or do you 
sit there and walk with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have known the truth of this country for so long and be like, you know what, if I now know better, it's time to be better. Mm. So I think what we've been seeing with the massive response, especially within the Newcastle community, a lot of young people are driving that. Yeah. Um, it was it was one of my first marches here for a long time from being from living away. So to see that young people's response, it is important right now. Our older fellows have been marching this course mm. for a long time. It's time for us to stand up, carry that torch. Mm. But also the effects of COVID as well and the effects that it can have on our older people. Now is the time for us to step up as a younger generation. Mm. Why do we want to expose our knowledge from our elders? Our elders are our library. Yep. We lose one of those elder, elders, we lose a library <clears throat> of information. It's time for us to step up, get on the phone, learn, like, learn the history. Learn the history of the true history of our country, but also the local history of what we have here in Newcastle. Because Newcastle, despite having racism, has been the leader of a lot of causes. We mm. did have the first <coughs> government building to fly the flag. Yeah. You know, with Town Hall. We did have Newcastle City Council having the first reconciliation action plan. They were one of the first ones. Mm. So Newcastle has been a leader in terms of, um, you know, activism and walking alongside Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But we've got to keep that going. Yeah. So with all the, the young people that you have seen at the marches, do you think they're understanding why they're there and why they're wearing the red, black and yellow and carrying the flags? Do you think it? Do you think it's just because what they've seen on TV that they were being killed or do you think that they're learning more now and that's why they're there? They're wanting to say, hey, this has got to stop. Oh, definitely. it's It's got to stop. And I think what I've seen, the ignorance from a lot of young people, though, uh, especially in that social media space and... Let's understand uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander demographic. There's studies out there to show that we are highest, one of the highest users of that mm. within this country. Mm. So when, when we do look at that and what is going on, there's a lot of people not in our space saying, oh, it's not happening here. That's in America. It doesn't happen here. But what's that going to take for you to change your mind? Mm. So the thing that I get scared about is that we have seen photos like this. We have seen videos like this of instances happening within our community. We, we saw it a couple of days after in Surrey Hills of, oh, a, yes, of a young yes, fellow just yes. being absolutely face-planted when yeah, he surrendered. Yeah. Someone surrendered the other day and Sydney got tased. Mm. So you're seeing that. But what it, what is it going to take for Australia to take it up to a next level? And what scares me is that is it going to be one of these cameras actually capturing the death of one of our people? Mm. That scares mm. me. Because it should not take one person to die yeah. as a person of colour, Indigenous True. or black, yeah. for us to want equality. Yeah. It's there. I, th I think, Rod, one of the things that I see, and, and Deb mentioned this when um, she did her introduction, um, was around her parents taking her to um, in Moree at the time of the, um, the Freedom Ride. So at eight year old, she was exposed to that. Mm. Um, I look at my kids. You know, I, t I took my kids to. We were at the we were at the um, ten embassy for the forty year anniversary, and um, to my surprise, when I turned my back, they were um, up on the front line with with all the women sitting down and um, you know <laughs> stopping the. Play. I, I grabbed the I grabbed the pair of them and dragged them out of there. But <laughs> but um, I exposed them to that because yeah, it was important yeah. for them. It, it was important from from my perspective for my kids to understand. Um, the challenges of our people and the challenges of, of history. I think with young people today, um, they, we've got to be careful with social media because they've got a different platform. Um, mm. You know, when you think about um, Facebook, um, Twitter, you know, Instagram, all of these <coughs> other different TikTok or whatever it is, all these things that these kids are on, um, you've got to be careful in those spaces that you um, you don't just react and respond to, to things. So you, if you're not educated and you're not um, familiar with your history, um, you can quite easily get into an argument, but it's, if you're having those arguments, you want to be able to then back up your statements and back up what it is you're yeah. posting and so on. Mm. So social media can can be both positive for our people, but it can also be dangerous if oh, people yeah. aren't yeah. aren't aren't properly informed about the messages that they're getting out there. Especially um, when you look into it too, there's so many people out there in that 
you know, social media space that believe opinions are facts. <laughs> and that and that's the dangerous part of if you're being baited into someone else's opinion of yeah. you and who you yeah. are and that identity and you jump into that, yeah. you're allowing them the potential to win at something they still don't have no idea about. Mm. Case in point, Donald Trump. Exactly. Yeah, Dev, I just wanted to come to I, you I on agree that. With, yeah, I agree with Sean. I think um, people jump onto things not knowing all the background information, and that's yeah. the sad part. Mm. And I, I think what's happened is that it has overtaken our kids in a lot of ways and it takes something like this for them to jump up and not just kids but but i think it, it, there's different reasons why we all uh, react or behave differently and i see for myself like the first thing we get is angry but we also like I think Sean mentioned earlier, we still have this hopelessness and helplessness in us and we we don't, we haven't seen in the past a lot of things come from the rallies and the protests because they've only been minute, mm. things that have happened. And, and I mean, the um, deaths in custody report mm. is a good example of that, that, you know, uh, there was a minute um, process, I guess, about the recommendation. So they didn't follow through all mm. of it. And, and I think, like we said, um, I think uh, Jake's earlier about the education system. Um, even Aboriginal culture is not taught in primary and high schools. It's later hmm. um, in life at universities that you find out um, that there's more to the story, so to speak. Mm -hmm. and, um, and our elders have um, competed for a long time with schools mm. in, in terms of the kids go to school for six hours a day. Yeah. Usually you're just um, trying to get them ready in that for school in the morning, then they come home, sometimes they got a, some homework to do and then it's time for tea and bed. So for us to reinforce the cultural stuff has been um, so, uh, what is it, blindsided? Redu reduced dramatically. And reduced. Yes. So yes. We, don't, we don't spend a lot of time teaching our culture and even though it is it, our culture is about observation uh, not about teaching so even that style of of learning that our kids have, mm. have been through is not cultural yeah um, in terms of yeah, yeah. It's, it's ours was more on observation mm. and then mm. doing stuff when i look at that stuff too in terms of language and dialect and the difference in that so language is something that you can write and speak where dialect is only a spoken so where's the value in in us in terms of our language especially within a school system so oh, if you can't write your language it's not valued so to me the difference within that too like that scares me because we've already got a system that doesn't uh, doesn't value our language so how do we implement that within a white system well mm. I, I think that's that's the thing that oppression causes us. Yeah. You know, like that we're still in an oppressed state without us even realising it. Because what stops us from um, writing up our language now? And I know there's processes we have to go through. But sometimes we all become complacent. And, and like we said, because schools, and I think schools is a good example, is because our kids spend so long in school learning that process that um, then we as, as parents become complacent and or tired or haven't got any energy mm. by the time the kids come home. And, and I think Debbie, it's also because you're stretched. When you think about, yes. I think about um, yourself and the, um, the grandmothers against removals and all of that work, you know, that's just one space. And then you go mm. from there to the health space. Mm. And then you go from there um, to uh, dealing with deaths in custody. And you know, so yeah. you're, you're yeah. Um, we're so stretched in regards to where we have to respond and the urgency of why we have to respond. If you, if you didn't respond in the, in the, um, you know, grandmothers against removal space, um, then that would get worse. If you if you don't respond into the Aboriginal deaths in custody space, that will continue yeah. to get worse. So, you know, you're you're constantly being torn apart by everything that we have to respond to and the urgency of all of those issues. And, and that's probably a really good point because we react to things mm. rather than actually 
thinking of a long-term responding, but we react to everything and that sort of is just putting out little fires. But we need to be able to put out the bushfire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's what we need to work on is putting out that bushfire, not the little little spot fires. fires. (laughs) That's right. All right, we're going to move on to the next question and Sean, with you talking about uh, GMAR, Grandmothers uh, Against Removal. So this question is for all of you, but Debbie, um, I'll ask you first because you are with GMAR, which is Grandmothers Against Removal, and you've worked for DOCS. New South Wales. Um, The question is, you know, so around the removal of our children, uh, I'd like to talk about families, the importance of families, and do you think the removal of our children play a big part of our kids being incarcerated at an older age, you know, creating higher risks to deaths in custody? Well, yes, there's, um, through my um, involvement with Grandmothers Against Removals New South Wales, um, there has been research and there's evidence there to tell us, um, and I would fight the fight that to us that is the crux right Mm. there Mm. because 65% of our kids who go through the out of home care system end up in juvenile justice Mm. detention and and then it gets a little bit higher in percentages for them to go on to jail and and that's all about really it's about losing their identity and yeah we have a sense of belonging um, but that system sort of breaks that and we lose some of our, our identity. And if you read the Bringing Them Home report um, from the Stolen Generations, yep. th- they talk about that. They talk about, they. You know, a lot of those people say they didn't fit in the white world, but they also came home looking for family and didn't fit into that world either. Yeah. So yeah. identity yeah. is a really mm. important issue. And like I said, if we talk about the cracks of things, that's the fight we, we should be mm. really fighting hard about the genocide of this country. And, and it's all about assimilating our kids mm. to be white. And, and I could just make one quote that Russell Means says, and he's an American Indian um, activist, he's passed now, but he, said, he says about the United States of America, um, we can be anything we want except American Indians. <laughs> and I think it's so, it's so uh, prevalent to us, we can be anything we want as long as we're not blackfellas. Sean, I'll go to you next. Yes, around the whole re- removal of our children and, and being incarcerated, as Debbie's saying, with those percentages. Do you know any stories or things like that where you've... Oh, look, I, I only got to look at my own history. I grew up in a foster home with 42 kids. Yeah. And, um, you know, some of those kids haven't made it um mm, i've got mm. a photo I, i've got a photo of um of a lot all of those kids together and the, the the first five kids sitting at the front of those photos all younger than me um have all passed away um through through different issues drug and alcohol issues um mm. renal failure you know a whole range of a whole range of things that are, that are impacted from our that they've been impacted from our past one of the, and Deb's absolutely spot on. We have to address this issue. One of the things that I've tried to do to overcome that is to ensure that the trauma I experienced um, and the trauma of of um, uh, being taken from your parents and being raised in a foster home. Although, although I, I believe that I had a pretty good upbringing. I, I, well, I know I had a pretty good upbringing. I um, I loved my childhood and it was great to be around those forty two kids. But one of the things that I've had to deal with over my life is to ensure that that trauma that I've I've dealt with doesn't go onto my kids, and so that my kids, yeah, yeah, when they're ready to have kids, they are able to then move forward yeah. without that. And that's that's difficult for a lot of our parents because you know, parents if their kids have been taken off them, they're being raised yeah. somewhere else. The system spits those kids out when they turn um, eighteen. When they turn yeah. eighteen, they're, they're they're spat out. Yeah. Um, and they've got, to, they've got to find where do they fit yeah. and how do they fit. And sometimes if they go back to their, their parents, um, nothing much might have changed in that space, so they just jump straight back into that life. Um, you know, I've lost four brothers to drug and alcohol abuse. Um, mm. I've got one in hospital in Dubbo right now um, that I'm heading out to tomorrow to see. Um, I've only was out there two weeks ago putting him in a rehab. But it's 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 not the issues that he's dealing with today. Yeah, yeah. It's the trauma that he's constantly had to deal with mm. through, um, you know, you do you, you think about rejection, 
Um, you think about why me, why was I given away? Mm. You think about the issues of identity and a culture and where do you fit and all those things. I was fortunate that I grew up, as I said, with 42 Aboriginal kids and Aboriginal parents that we had a very strong cultural yeah. upbringing. But there are many kids today being raised by non-Aboriginal parents with, with no connection um, yeah. to community whatsoever. Yeah. I suppose just I'll move on to you, Jacob, because um, something that you both mentioned about that, you were saying you are fortunate that the fear wasn't... You haven't passed that fear on to your kids about, you know, being removed. Because I remember... And you talked about, you know, when our kids, when our people years ago would go to school with a snotty nose. Because as a kid, I can always remember my mother always made sure when we went to school, our shoes were clean, our hair was perfect, and we were dressed neatly. And it wasn't until I actually got older that I actually, when mum would tell stories, that if that, back in the, like my parents were born in the 30s, but back in the 40s when they were going to school, it was exactly that. If they went to, my dad used to tell us they didn't wear their shoes to school because if they were muddy, um, by the time they got to school, they'd ring the police. Police would come and pick them up and say, this child's been neglected, take him away. Do you, do you see, I mean, is that is that how, I suppose I wanna ask you, Jake, what are your thoughts around what they've just said too? Um, definitely agree, like working in that space with kids in out of home care, but also, mum and dad had over 100 kids, foster kids, live with us. I'm one of six. So we already got to drive in the house. Yeah, yeah. Mum hated seeing families broken up. When they got put in respite care, mum could not stand that because then you've got one sibling over here, mm. one on the opposite side of town. One might not even be in that area. Uh, when we just even looking in that space when I was in out of home care you know you got places like docks that weren't even looking to put our kids in kinship systems they just went straight to white family straight away so to me it's definitely uh, comes down to identity when you've already got kids being separated from the core of who they are and disconnected for various reasons mm. you put them in a system but when they're of age you got that place of neglect. Okay, well, you're on your own now. So you try, like you said, you're out there finding your own. You're trying to find that identity of who you are. And I see that with, you know, some of the kids that I worked with who are now adults now. Mm. And I'm playing that mentor still because I don't want to see them fall through the cracks. Mm. I don't want to see them. They've been fortunate enough, but they've also been neglected by a system to not address the... Um, essentially mental health issues that have come along mm, that's true so we look at it now and it's like okay well, one of the things that be on, being funded is the cure mm. it's always the cure that's being funded it's never the prevention mm, it's good to think yeah so it's to me it's like why aren't things being put in place prior what, why do you let it get to that space yeah. for someone to be removed yeah. Why are you letting it get to that space, like, even if they are in care and they're about to be of age, why are you letting them just go and say, ah, oh, you're on your own now, we we put a roof over your head and clothes <laughs> on your back? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I think the challenge for me is, the, is the, value, the value system is wrong in regards to Aboriginal people. So if you look at the, the out-of-home care space, it's worth billions of dollars across mm. this country, billions of dollars. And organisations do very well in that space. Mm. Um, if you look at the um, the justice system, again worth billions of dollars, um, and Aboriginal people, Aboriginal people um, in Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia are the the um, highest incarcerated people of any people in the world. Yeah, yeah. Of any mm. people, any people in the world. Yeah, that's crazy. That is, that's you know, that is just crazy. Um, but when you look at the value system of that. It costs a ridiculous amount of money, $1,200 per day to incarcerate a, a person. Um, and when we look at the number of our people in, in prisons um, and that figure, that's costing well over a million dollars a year to have a, a one person in prison, mm. you know, which includes um, infrastructure, includes the, the workers, the food, everything that's involved in that space. That money can be best spent. And if we were spending it in the, in, in the early, um, intervention? early intervention space... Yeah. Yeah. Because everything that we do is in the prevention space. Yeah. We wait. We wait until 
um, we've got chronic diseases and then we throw a whole heap of money at it. We wait until our kids <laughs> yeah, drop out right. in year nine and we'll throw a heap of money at it. Yeah. But we're not actually investing back here early enough in yeah. in getting our kids to preschool and getting the education system right yeah. or getting our kids into our own schools and, and um, getting those things right, getting the family structures right. Mm. Um, the support doesn't come until the wheels fall off. Yeah, I think that's true. I've actually been saying <clears throat> just um, recently that do people actually know the definition of insanity? Mm. Because the insanity is when you continue to do the same thing over and over again with no good results. And so why in Australia do we keep doing that? We, you know, not we, but they, the government, mm. is, um, it's like you said, if, if they don't do early intervention, then they're doing the same stuff over and over mm. again with no good results. No good results come out of removing kids and placing them in the out out of home care and that's all over the world the care and protection systems all over the world they will tell you their systems fail do you well, think maybe the same thing to rod before yeah. i said imagine having a system in place for you to succeed for 200 years and you have the year 2020 just to expose it you're still not doing it right mm. Mm. what you're and doing good, is still not right and a good point like you brought up like 1200 dollars a day now who would spend 1200 dollars a day to lock someone up. You don't even pay them $1,200 a fortnight on Centrelink <laughs> payments to be able to live. So, and that's what I'm talking about. That's what insanity is. Yeah, is yeah, you yeah. know, like spending this ridiculous amount of money. And, and like we said, it's the same with out of home care. All the money that goes into out of home care, oh. where, yeah, I think it's 75% of the funding goes to out of home care and not even the other 25% goes towards early intervention. So it, it's, to me, it appears like we want our society be, to be sick. We want all this to happen because we mm. don't spend the money where it should be spent. I was just about, that's why I, was, I wanted to ask you, it's, it almost seems like they want us to fail. Mm. Yeah. And just before we wrap up the, uh, with, our, with our kids and, and families, uh, just with GMA, do you want to just explain a little bit more about that? Because GMA, uh, New, South Wales. New South Wales, it's more about, as you said, with docs, it's about just removing the kids and putting them with whoever. But with you guys, it's about putting with their own mob, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Well, what we what we do is we 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 talk about advocacy. So we go in early and we advocate. We there's a document that um, we've produced called um, The Guiding Principles of How to Engage with Aboriginal um, community, Families and Communities in the Care and Protection System. Big title, mm. but um, but that's what that's about. It's yeah. about as soon as there's some trouble going on here in a family, then it's about calling family in, you know, having discussions with family early up. Yeah. And if the child does need to be removed from their parents, they have grandparents, they have aunties, mm. they have uncles, they have cousins. Mm. You know, we all know what a blackfella family look like. It's not two, the two adults and two children. <laughs> yeah, it's more like 10 kids mm. and two adults. So and we, three beds. And three beds, <laughs> yes. So, we, we, you know, we know what that looks like. So there's no excuses not to keep these kids with family. Mm. And the out-of-home care system is a system that, um, diminishes what a, what our families look like and what our families can do, and that's what we fight for. We fight that um, straight away. You know, see somebody in trouble, um, and the thing is, we all at times have trouble in our lives. Oh. It's not yeah, you know, like mm. things like drug and alcohol. They're social issues. They're not Aboriginal mm. issues specifically. Yeah, yeah, domestic violence is not a specific to Aboriginal people. So all these issues are social issues of this country. Introduced, mm. not issues. just in, oh. yeah, and generally introduced stuff. So, um, yeah, so we still we should be looking, and that's what we do, Gemma. Uh, Grandmas Against Women in New South Wales, we look at how to keep the kids out of the system. Because mm. don't get me started on how then no. the law systems work. <laughs> all right. Uh, next question I'd like to ask you all is, how does Australia come to the terms with its past when studies show that three in four Australians hold a racial bias stand against Indigenous Australians? Mr Gordon. Yeah, no, that, and that was a report that um, uh, came out through... Um, uh, through the Canberra Canberra University, um, you know, it's it's not surprising. 
when you when you think about three and three and four Australians have a racial bias against um, Indigenous people, could we say it the other way too? You, we could say it the other way, but because I, look, but all the things that we've talked about, mm. you know, the removal of our kids, you know, the yep. youth, and all those. Um, yeah, but, I, I think the challenge we've got to but do. But we're is not racial. Ours would be more anger and frustration. Well, uh, ours is ours. You've got to put it in an historical context, um, and when you put it in the, into an historical context of a people that have been existed here for well over sixty thousand years, and it, you know the the the, the, mm. the the, um, the the scientific proof um, demonstrates that, um, and then within this short place, space of time, um, you know, from the time Cook um, sailed the shores here in 1770 and put a flag up at um, uh, Possession Island, claiming the east coast of Australia, to mm. 1788, um, when Arthur F um, Philip decides to come and um, settle here in New South Wales, um, you then got to look at it in that context. And the context was is that Arthur Philip was given orders to reach agreement, reach agreement with the, the natives and not, not to harm anyone. Um, that didn't happen. And so that, so that, set, that, that very first engagement set the relationship moving forward um, to where people had just been pushed to the fringes, um, early dispossession. We then led to um, the you know, massacres. And um, mm. so there's this been constant history the challenge we have as a country, um, and when I look at those numbers, it would be really nice to try and understand why those numbers are the way they are. Is it because there is a denial <coughs> of the history um, and that non-Indigenous people aren't willing to accept the guilt of those things occurring, the dispossession, the, the massacres, the brutal killings, um, the slavery? Mm. Um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, Scott Morrison makes an announcement yes. that, that Australia yes. you know, has nowhere near the history of America. Yeah. We don't have the slavery. But here our people are in chains. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I know. Uh, it's it's just it's just crazy that that um, the prime minister of the country has this denial. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Tony Abbott recently, when when he was a prime minister, makes a, a statement around um, Aboriginal people living on country as a lifestyle choice. You know, these these this these are the types of perceptions that we're constantly having to deal with. And so the work that I do, I actually work on the right side of politics. Um, I should say the right of politics. <laughs> sometimes it's the right side, sometimes it's the wrong side. But I actually work with politicians on the right of politics gotcha. um, to provide them with yep. a broader education mm. of our history and to give them an understanding. And so, um, you know, during the, the Black Lives Matter rally, what, what rallies that were happening around the, the, the country, what I did was made an effort to um, to work with the New South Wales Senator to connect him up with those families in Brewarrina who um, experienced Aboriginal deaths in custody. Mm. For that, for him to get a direct understanding of the impact going back to 1987, to how those families are still dealing with that impact today, mm. it hasn't gone and it hasn't disappeared. Yeah, and those three families that I spoke to all said the same thing: there was no justice that they felt that the system that is meant to be fair and just to them, that is built on a foundation document of the Constitution, which says that we will treat all people fair and just, mm. the system did not treat them fair and just mm. when it came to the lives of their family members. And that's, I think, the real challenge that we have. Um, add to that inequality, um, inequity. When I look to America and I look at the Black Lives Matters protests and I look at the looting, there were a lot of white people looting. Yeah, yeah. And that tells me that America's got a bigger problem um, than just this racial problem. They've got an inequality problem mm. um, where people are being oppressed of all um, you know, different backgrounds. Um, and that's the difficulty we have in this country. As Aboriginal people, we are at the very bottom of the rung when it comes to inequality, when it comes to equity, um, when it comes to justice. Um, when it comes to fairness um, and the challenge that the country has is how do how do we bring this group of people up um, and put them at, a, at an even keel where we're recognised for who we are mm. as the first people of this country, um, recognised for our rightful place within the country. Um, and the only thing that um, connects non-Aboriginal people to that is the Constitution. Um, you know, so I do a lot of work on... 
um, ensuring that Aboriginal people and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people are recognised in the Constitution, which is the, the founding document of the of the country. Um, so I can talk a little bit more to that, but I want to hear what the others mm. have got to say as well. I'll go to Jake next. As a young person growing up um, in this day and age, are you surprised by those facts that three and four Australians hold a racial bias stand against us? I'm not surprised, considering the educational system hasn't changed. Like mm. I mentioned before, like if people are still having to learn the same thing that's been proven wrong, then obviously those biases are going to be there. And um, with that, the sense of entitlement, I should get this because who I am. Mm. Um, I just, I just found it, um, just found it weird that when these events started occurring. It was during Reconciliation Week for us. Hmm. It wasn't just the death of George Floyd. We had a site, a sacred site, absolutely torn down from a mining company in WA. Mm -hmm. The, the big, one of the, the biggest mining companies in the, in the country, mm. Rio so, Tinto. Mm. So it's that thing, that's all crazy to me. And then when we look at the word reconciliation of you know people coming together for to form friendly relations why is reconciliation week for us us having to move forward to sit at the table would you ask someone who's been a victim of domestic violence to yeah. go apologize to the person who assaulted yeah you wouldn't ask it yeah so why are we coming to the table when it should be the opposite way around in terms of reconciliation so all these all these systems and that of um that are built around for us to make the movement it has to be the other way around yeah i totally agree with you with the reconciliation i don't it's not us that invaded a country it's not us that did the massacres it's not that us that took children away but yet they want us to drive it and you have these reconciliation action plans. I'm like, oh, it's a great plan. But mm. what about the middle word, action? What are you putting into play? So but, but, but that's the sort of world we live in where um, they expect the oppressed to fix their own problems. Uh, you know, like the oppressors won't admit. And I think... This Come to the table on our terms. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And this country... Um, I, I don't like using this phrase, but white privilege is well ingrained into people that um, that's the thing that needs to be shifted. And people, and, and I've been doing stuff now, some workshops with unconscious bias and getting people to let that unconscious bias become conscious to them and then they may be able to address it, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you can get it out of that unconscious state. And people really need to have a look and do... Um, and I do this in in our women's group that I run is is called it's called cultural self awareness. Mm. But people should be evaluating themselves. You know, the self awareness should come in or self reflection. Everybody should do that mm. on a regular basis. Because if even if you're doing something and you know it hasn't worked, why would you go and do the same thing again? Yeah. So it's about yeah reflecting on how you behave how you perform in your job whatever it is unless you can regulate yourself and understand that if 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 that's not right and i think that's that comes with empathy and compassion and i think we've lost a lot of that i think we've lost empathy and compassion for people and um and therefore we don't self-reflect we don't look at you know well, what I did there, that was wrong. I need to go and apologise and ask, how can I do it better? Yes, And we yes. don't do that well yeah. enough. They don't do and that I at think, all. And I think, Deb, to add to that is that um, we don't um, see the value. And one of the things that, um, you know, that's been clear over, over the work that I do is this lack of value for Indigenous um, people. Mm. And, um, you know, and, and that's something that needs to be addressed. And... When, we th when I think about Black Lives Matter, I, I sort of think about a whole aspect um, from sites, you know, my cultural sites being destroyed for the purpose of mining. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's not valuing our culture. You're not going to go and, uh, you know, 
destroy the the you know the cathedral up here mm. um, to put a mine mm. in place. Mm. Um, and it's even true. in some smaller places, you're not going to go and dis- destroy the local church or a historic library. And you know, in um, in Western terms, they have these historical places. Um, you know, the the current site of a Wobbicle at Annal Street, Wickham, is an historical building. Um, historical in Western terms. Um, but when we think about it, our terms, what's below that is more important because mm. th- that site used to be a um, a ceremonial ground. So mm. it's a, you know it's a significant um, historical site for us. Um, when there's no value around your culture, there's no value around your language, there's no value around your identity. Um, you know they're the things that need to be addressed before Australia starts to shift, and that's about dealing with this unconscious bias. It's about people reflecting on where is our place in society and it's not enough just to have plaque names on buildings mm. or a picture here or something else there um, and even reconciliation plans it's not enough just to have those things in place mm. it's the things that you do that will make a difference and create a change um, and right now I think there is this undervaluing of indigenous culture mm. particularly around the recent bushfires mm. you know, our, our, our knowledge and understanding of how to manage yeah, landscapes yeah. could have made a massive difference. Yeah. But there's this constant undervaluing of what it is we have to contribute. Yeah. Coronavirus, there is so much that non-Indigenous Australia could have learnt about how we looked, how we managed our way through coronavirus. And I watched, I watched, um, and uh, my bit of bias because my wife's a CEO, <laughs> but I watched the way in which a Wobbicle responded. Mm and the way in which our community responded, mm. there would be a lot of non-Aboriginal people out there envious of what we had, what we had and what we did. Elders getting food delivered, making mm. sure that the, they were still getting their medical checkups over mm. the phone. There's this whole network and system that we have, mm. which non-Indigenous people don't have. Mm. They, they don't have that same sense of community, belonging, caring, um, fostering. Um, and the way our community responded to corona towards our own community, mm. our own people, I can guarantee you I don't think that was the same response for non-Aboriginal people because it's not there. And yeah. that's that's where that undervaluing, um, you know, mm. needs to be picked up. Mm. I remember someone saying, it was about two weeks ago, and they're like, oh, you need to have all your knowledge stored somewhere. And I'm like, our knowledge is on the land. Our knowledge is within mm. our people. It's within our art, stories and songs. Why does it need to be in this white ideology of a museum mm. for you to put value into it? Why does it have to be in a building locked up and stored away yeah. for you to see the value in where you live, where you come from, and the true identity mm. of this country? It's true. I just want to finish up on that. Um, and, Deb, I just want to ask you lastly, like, with that, are you, we were talking about the 1965 uh, Freedom Right, and when it, as you said, when it came through Moree, Probably at that time, it might have been 3.8% of Australians didn't <laughs> were racially biased. And now we are here what, 55 years later, and it's only three out of four. D- does that shock you? Um, that's, that's I suppose it does in some ways because of the population growth that's happened since then. But... Um, but we haven't dealt with it and that's why it's still there and that's why it's so high because we haven't dealt with it in the right way. Mm. And when I say we, I don't mean us as Aboriginal people. I mean we generally as a society mm. haven't dealt with it. And, and they're the topics we've been covering, you know, like people looking at their, their biases and about then how to change mm. that bias. So, um, no, it doesn't surprise me, but it, it still makes me sad mm. um, that... there's that many people. I was shocked. To even look historically on that too, if if we look at that and some of these movements, whether it be the 10 Embassy or the Freedom Rides, we also got to acknowledge there were a lot of white allies in that. And they were university students. You know, so it's it's never been this whole thing of like completely black versus white. Mm. It's a system. It's a system that's continually chosen to oppress us because at the end of the day, we have had we've had to utilise a white voice in some way to get our voice out there. There was um, there's documents through newspaper articles. There were, um, 
Maloney family within Newcastle. They use that um, newspaper articles to get our voice out there with a lot of these, you know, with Fred Maynard's work, with um, William Cooper and Bill Ferguson. So we had those in place. So it's, it's important to acknowledge we had strong white allies that were mm. willing to put their backs against the wall with us mm. as well. So it's... It was the same so in Moree. There was a man on the council who went with Charlie Perkins and took Charlie Perkins into the pool. And he sat there and, and he said, fighting for mm. now for the kids to be able to go to the mm. pool. And when they did the anniversary, <coughs> excuse me, um, they did the same. That it, When Charlie came back, they both went into the pool. He was still there. Um, mm. I've forgotten his name. It's terrible. Mm. But, but they went back to the mm. pool. But it would be interesting, though, um, I think to see how come university students jump onto um, the rallies and stuff because mm. it happened back then and it still happens it just, today. It, it was the, the majority, yeah. probably the majority of some of the people who were there were university students or had been to uni just recently. So that that sort of interests me mm. in mm. terms of yeah, they, yeah, like you said, is they it do. once they don't understand till they get to university? is because they don't do that learning in the primaries and the high schools. Yeah. Mm. Is, that, is that one of the reasons? But that, that would be interesting yeah. to mm. find out. A big, a big part of it is leadership <coughs> and, and leadership at the... Um, and, I, and I'm not talking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership. I'm talking about non-Indigenous leadership. If you look at our history and the amount of... Um, you know, the, the conversation around um, recognition and all of those things, um, it's been going around for a long time, but the first Prime Minister to really jump on board with it was um, surprisingly John Howard, um, uh, who pushed that for does surprise a me. reconciliation process. Mm. Um, so it was John Howard, and he pushed, and that's when Reconciliation Australia and those other things came about. We well, had those March, what March about Whitlam, 2000. Yeah. What about Whitlam? Whitlam did Whitlam did um, lots of good things, but he but he wasn't specifically pushing for that type of um, process and. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to leadership. And if we're going to convince the 97%, because mm. we only make up 3% of yep. the country, if we're going to convince the 90% of the country to support Indigenous people with whatever it is, so, you know, with with, um, um, with a voice, with treaty, with the truth-telling um, process, then um, it's up to our national leaders, mm. um, political leaders, to do that. Uh, and I think, you know, the Scott Morrison's in an ideal position it's whether he's got the will to to um, challenge mm. those in his own party mm. to say I'm going to do this, and you know what? In the space of politics, there's no um, there's no real you know there's there's no one we can stand up and say there's been a real champion here for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues mm. um, because whether whether it's the Nationals, whether it's the Liberals, whether it's the Labor, whether it's the Greens, Fisher shooters, you name them all. Um, they've all done very little. We've, mm. What we've fought, what we've got, and what we have, our people have fought for those incremental changes over a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. So, with the public pressure, um, the marches, the rallies over all of those years, they've been crucial to this. So uh, we have to continue. We have to continue to keep doing those rallies. It's proof that we're stronger yep. together mm. as well. Mm. So when you look at that <clears throat> space with the referendum in '67, yeah, we, we couldn't vote. Mm. Our mob couldn't vote. And we got a majority vote there. Small win. We take it, but like I said, there's got to be action yeah, behind well, it now too. And correction, so our people could vote. Um, mm. um, so there's legislation pushed push through in 58, I think, that allowed our people yeah. to vote. But what it didn't do referendum was, was... The referendum didn't recognise, didn't yeah. count us mm. within the census yeah. to be able to get a clear understanding of, of even our voice. You know, yeah. Just by knowing your population and by knowing your numbers gives you a clear indication as to what type of voice you have yeah and then when you know your three percent that you're three percent of the population you have to then be clear in your strategy as to how you move forward and what it is you can fight for mm. i want to congratulate grandmothers against removal in new mm. south wales because their their work um the incremental changes they've made and to get the work they've done um recognised in Parliament and the policies recognised in New South Wales Parliament has been a massive achievement and it's been a long... I've been watching them from a distance. 
but well, maybe you know, uh, you know. maybe someone might have to have a little chat with him. And as he said, he is the voice on the inside to make it the right way. Mm. <laughs> but but for me, that's that's where the changes yeah. come. It's yeah. incremental changes, and we've got to be we've got to be strategic on how we do that. If we just go out and say we want this yeah. to happen, it's not going to. The, the reality when you're three percent of the population, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so our success has come over a long 200 years. All right, we're going to finish up here and I'll uh, go with you, Jacob, first. This question, uh, last question. How do you think we move forward and make changes? So does this, uh, so this, this doesn't keep happening? Um, it comes down to education. Mm. So within our, uh, you know, my generation, we've got to understand the history mm-hmm. of where we were to where we're at and have a good understanding of the policies and procedures that are in place that is that are prohibiting us to move forward further. We have to start having these conversations, like my generation, the way we are having this generation now, to learn and pick up a few things. I didn't know what you just mentioned before in terms of the 58 and being allowed to have that vote. So it's, un- it's crucial for me to understand that a little yeah. bit further. By having these conversations mm-hmm. uh, within your education in a white space in school, but more importantly, your cultural education and grounding, we need that to move forward because we need to be the advocates from what they started. Yeah. Shawnee? Um, look, for me, I think it's I think it's um, about Australia um, accepting its... It, it coming to, to terms with its history, um, being able to... Um, Non-Indigenous Australians being able to reconcile um, with themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the... the the relationship they've had within with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and then looking at a way in which we can, I guess, cement that relationship moving forward. Yeah. Um, you know, given to where we are, I think one thing has clearly come out is that as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we are um, we are we are relentless in regards that we're not going away, mm. um, but we're also quick to forgive um, mm. if we're able to get um, the relationship right moving forward. Um, so for me, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, it's about honouring that process of a voice, a treaty and a truth-telling um, yeah. within our country. Very good. Deb, how do, we, how do you think we can move forward and so things can change? <clears throat> well, I think that both gentlemen here have said um, what I feel as well and I think um, we've given answers all throughout this interview as well. You know, like um, people really need to look Mm-hmm. inside themselves and look at what needs changing in them for them to come and sit at a table with us because we've been happy to sit at the table for a long time so we've you know governments and people like that and I think like Sean said with Grandmothers Against Removals New South Wales we've got a little bit of that where we're sitting at the table and they're making decisions um, that we recommend from that point mm-hmm. and, and, you, and you've got to really do both you got to sit there, but you've got to still come back to your community and you've got to be able to, like um, I think Jake said, it's about uplifting our community mm. to, to do it in a way that's going to see good results for yeah. us. Yeah. I would just like to answer, say that I think I agree with all of you, and I think when you see the, all the social media feed and just on the news, it's I think it's the education side. I think everyone keeps asking, oh, why are black folks like this and why are they arguing about this and no, why this and why that? And that's where I think if... And it's about when we teach the past, it's, and as we all know, it's not about... We don't want white fellows to feel guilty. It's just that it's that education and the understanding. And then once they know the whys, when something like this happens and there's big march rallies, they're not all over Facebook saying, oh, well, you know, why this and why that? At the end of the day, I, I just think we got to start. Yeah, as, as we know, the truth yeah. is the truth is not being taught, and we want the truth taught not as guilt, but just as the truth. Yeah. And it's a part of our history. I think clearly is for every for every action, there's a reaction. Mm. The the action of Australia rallying rallying um, in relation to Black Lives Matter. The reaction to that now is there's a massive campaign happening right across mainstream media around. Um, uh, violence against police. Mm. Um, you look at it on the morning, the, the, all of the morning shows, they're showing more and more each day around um, police being assaulted and so on. And so that's that's the response. It's saying, well, wait up, you know, 
Yeah, the three yeah. percent are playing the victim here, but we're going to flip this on their head. On the, we're going to flip it on its head because we're the police. We're also victims within this, yeah. and, and to a large extent, I think I think they're right in regards to um, uh, some of what they're doing. But what we've got to do is find balance within the process and find common ground where the, the police accept that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, we yeah. accept our our wrongdoings, um, and then we find a way forward. Yeah. But by, by, by just pitting each other against each other, you don't actually come up yeah. with solutions. Mm. You just continually, you know, you just continually yeah. um, respond to it in a negative way. And, and maybe that's yeah. why they and don't keep, want to teach it. Maybe that's divided. why they don't. Yeah, yeah and yes. you keep it divided. Maybe yeah. that's why they don't want to teach the truth because it'll make people understand more. Well, yeah. look, Mr. Sean Gordon, Mr. Jacob Ridgway, Miss Debbie Swan, I would just like to thank you. I personally learnt a lot more. Um, it was a very interesting, uh, educational, and uh, I, I quite enjoyed that. Debbie, just to finish off, how was it for you? Um, yeah, it was really good. Usually we have discussions like this and I get f- flared up and angry <laughs> and stuff, so it was much better. It was a really good discussion and um, I think we, um, we, ha- we all handled it very well. <laughs> Jake? I just enjoy sitting around here with so much knowledge. Mm. It's like you were saying, that new our, genera- our education and knowledge isn't in libraries. It's yeah, a lot of it's it is with, like it's this. within. So with my travels and where I've been and having a, moving back here a couple of years ago, that reconnection is important mm. to the mm. people within our communities. But also Newcastle has always been that point of travelling space. We've always been a crossroads. So we have the ability within... Newcastle to learn a lot from a lot of people from walks of life within the indigenous space so it's um it's crucial to understand those points of view I, I think it's important to that we understand each other mm. um, we're constantly arguing that the non-indigenous Australians um, are in denial of our history we've got to be careful that we also don't deny them of their history mm. and so the concept of trying to change names of states and suburb uh, states and suburbs or the, or removing removing statues and that that's just that in my opinion in my opinion that's just petty petty politics um because what we're in effect doing is is then denying non-indigenous mm. um people's history and this process of what we're trying to do and and in us trying to give recognition of our rightful place isn't to deny someone else's recognition of their place but it's trying to come up with a space where we all sit, where our statues might sit alongside their statues and give balance to the conversation rather than s- saying that one history mm. is more greater than the other. Well, hopefully with education and knowledge that one day the understanding of our history, that they might look at their statues and want to pull them down themselves. Yeah, well... As you it, said, it It, 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 it may not be that they're pulling down their statues. It may just be that... Our, our, our warriors are standing alongside Cook mm. and making it quite clear that there was an opposition or there was yeah. a there was another mm. perspective and there's always there will always be the view from the ship yep and there will always be the view from the from the shore mm. and our view on the shore was very different to what yeah. Cook was looking at from yeah. the ship um, and we've got to try and weave that into um, stra- what we what we determined is Australia moving forward. I think we're seeing a lot of those fellas change their names just off the back of what they knew, mm. know it being wrong now too. So that's that's an awesome thing too. Like we're not triggering you changing the name. You are, you've identified it. You know the history behind it mm. and you're changing it. So respecting that and letting yep. them do so. All right, I'm going to wrap this up there. I'd like to thank you three f- very, very much for coming on this episode of A Wobble Pod of Black Lives Matter. Mr. Gordon, Mr. Ridgway, Miss Swan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.